Welcome to episode 33 of the Neural Network. Today's episode, we take a deep dive into the world of hypertension with our special guest and my good friend, Dr. Brian Bird from the Bird Lab at the University of Michigan. In this episode, Brian unravels for us many of the clinical and scientific foundations of high blood pressure, also explores the intricacies of designing clinical studies to enhance patient care, and even journeys across species in order to understand some of the variations that we see in blood pressure. Plus, we'll delve into some of the regional differences within the human population and even spotlight the latest innovations in hypertension treatment. So stay tuned for this enlightening conversation where I guarantee that you are definitely going to learn something. So with that, here we go. Dr. Brian, welcome to the Neural Network. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I really am glad to be here. And yeah. uh, I was really happy to get your invitation. I, I wasn't expecting it, but I was really Delighted because, you know, one of the ideas that I've picked up along the, the way is that inter- innovation and new ideas tend to happen at the interface of disciplines. And yeah. when people hear what I work on, they'll realize it's probably not the same thing that they work on, but but there may be some overlap and there may be some interfaces that could be explored fruitfully. Yeah. You know, it's the that interface between, at least in our fields, between like the 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 neuroscience and the physiology that come together and being able to control one without being able to control the other is somewhat useless as we're finding, you know, because like one of the studies that I I recently did was looking at the upper airways and modulating opioids within neural networks. And, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to reverse some of the opioid suppression of neural activity by certain drugs, you know, that modify the activity of the neurons. But as we're finding, they also cause severe constriction of the airways. And so you can open up, you can reverse those neural network uh, effects as much as you want. But if the airways are closed off, like you're still, you're still not breathing. So. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. I mean, in physiology, we learn that there's a tremendous amount of redundancy, but, uh, and there's a lot of compensation, isn't there? And, and, you know, I don't know exactly what homeostasis is. I wrote a book chapter recently, not that, not that I'm recommending people write book chapters, but I wrote a book chapter yeah. recently, which I had to deal a little bit with what homeostasis is, and oh, um, wow. as opposed to allostasis and other kinds kinds of concepts, and it's it's kind of a tricky thing to to actually get your head around in in some ways. But it does seem that there are these uh, nested interactions between you know, systems in the body that tend to uh, tend toward um, a set point or t- something like that. Now that set point, it seems is also potentially malleable is not necessarily a fixed trait of being an organism or something like that. But yeah. Well, that, that's gotten my interest in recent years and with the, my main interest being blood pressure, I've been very interested in uh, some of the observations people have made that made me rethink what I had read in textbooks as I was being educated about what the normal human blood pressure is now. But anyway, that, I, I think your, your point is well taken that when you perturb one part of a system, you may find out that another part of the system uh, has a response that makes that inviolable as a strategy for addressing a problem. Yeah. Now, with the the set point thing, it's interesting because uh, 
I did some work on chronic hypercapnia and we were looking at the, you know, how the ventilation, the ventilatory chemoreflex or how sensitive you are to changes in, um, in hydrogen ion within the arterial blood change the ventilation. And we were finding that, you know, the sensitivity itself didn't change, but you've now shifted the set point as to where the steady state breathing was relative to the amount of, of acid base balance within your blood. And ah. so, and how you defended it around increases or decreases in hydrogen was still the same as before. So the slope of the response was the same, but you had just shifted the whole curve over. So it was like a, a classic physiology study. But the interesting thing was in the field set point there, the 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 term set point was, you know, you, you got some flack whenever you used it. But I had taken that concept from much of the hypertension research and much of the blood pressure research. And and I did my training in a... In a at the Medical College of Wisconsin, which is right. very much a, a hypertension department, That's and right. uh, and and so it's interesting when you talk about blood pressure and in blood pressure research, you know, uh, you you mentioned that there's this variability of where someone's blood pressure norm might be as a as someone that is looking at it both from like a researcher perspective and from a clinician perspective how do you address the intra individual variability when you're trying to you know create studies let alone trying to diagnose patients with being able to control the blood pressure to a certain point that's a great question there's a variety of different strategies that people use so one strategy is to use very large numbers of people yeah. And that, so, so that you could handle the uh, variation uh, by basically having a very large sample size. So that's one answer that comes uh, to mind. The second, in some of the studies that we've done have had ends of more than 100,000, that kind of thing. Yeah. Another, and those are, of course, observational studies. It's pretty hard to do a clinical trial or something like that on that scale. The, um, other answer is for some of our uh, studies that are more mechanistically focused, there's uh, the use of crossover designs that often helps in this regard, because then you can attempt to look at people as uh, use, using their baseline state of health as their control state. And you can attempt to perturb something and see whether or not uh, it changes. And the thing is that you at least minimize the inter-individual, the contribution of inter-individual variation to the um, problem uh, of giving out the true effect. So, so is that more focused on just looking at the response of each individual rather than the before and after pressure points? or? Well, it, it depends a little bit on what exactly you're measuring, but but I think what, we, what you can do in that setting is controlling for the baseline value you could do like i'll give you a real world example so one of the things we've done recently was we asked people to consume 230 milligrams of sodium per day or uh sodium chloride mostly uh but 230 milligrams or 6900 milligrams so sodium a day and in fact we had everybody do both things uh but there was an eight day period of washout where they simply consume their customary diet in between. And then we had their baseline assessment. Uh, and before that, we measured blood pressures and we measured urinary sodium to verify that people were indeed consuming the amounts that we thought because <laughs> surely speaking, what comes in comes out. People are yeah. at the steady state. Um, and, uh, you know, when you have that kind of a study design, you can look at 
people and and the statistical approach will use their baseline data and the change uh, from baseline in them in a way that uh, advantages you with respect to power. If you have to uh, look at parallel group comparisons, then you know that there's going to be greater variability between individuals you're comparing than there would be uh, between uh, a person and their future state of health. Oh, I see. And I see. and so it turns out that this helps to minimize one of the sources of variability. Yeah. Um, so so that that helps quite a bit, uh, and you know you still not guaranteed to find uh, you know what you're looking for necessarily. I mean that's just the nature of doing research, but that's one way to mitigate uh, the risk of not finding uh, you know an effect at all. And part of the other answer to the question, I think, is to um, you know take advantage of the fact that you're doing a study to measure a few a few different outcomes of interest that would be reasonable to look at so that you have a primary outcome but you don't disregard the possibility that that will actually work out as you expected but if you've studied this you know if you design things correctly there should be something of value that you would learn anyway yeah it, so those are some of the uh ideas that you know i and others i think use to mitigate against the risk of not finding anything now, if you have more than one outcome, you also have to consider the possibility that you could increase the risk of a, a so-called false discovery. In other words, the idea that you could have, um, you know, an error by not rejecting the null hypothesis that is attributable to the number of times you uh, sought a p-value. Uh, and we know that if you have, you know, essentially one way to think about a p-value that I've found useful over the years is if you have. Um, let's say a hundred instances of the same study design, uh, p-value less than 0.05 would represent that you could see a difference of that magnitude that you observed uh, by chance alone when there is no true systematic difference between two groups. Um, uh, about approximately you know, 5% or, or less than 5% of the time. And so when you start to roll the dice more than once, then of course you increase the probability that you will find an effect that is due to chance alone and the p-value of 0.05 isn't necessarily directly applicable anymore and we have to adjust that. Uh, so there's a few different considerations that, that come to, uh, that you have to bring to bear, but the uh, scope and, and sample size is probably one of the most important starting points what it you know how many people could we accrue that will tell you a great deal about how you might be able to look at different effects and whether or not you could realistically look at it at, at certain effects yeah and is it now when so for for designing a, a clinical study you know uh, taking all of those into account in order to at least have the statistics work in your favor to to an extent <laughs> you know so that you're not saying something that is you know we have this huge effect but the power size is really small and so you know how how good is it you know, over time you know that's one thing for the the clinical studies but for for actually in like a clinical practice taking care of patients now when you're looking at yeah. the individual person themselves if you're taking, you know, data from these studies with a hundred thousand people, that we know that there's the, you know, let's say the a clear trend of a drug having a certain effect to lower blood pressure per se, 
you know, but then we plop one person out from that data and there's a certain percentage of chance that they're actually going to have an effect. Um, you know, is there a certain standardized way that you take a person and let's say that you haven't had their blood pressure measurements over the last 20 years and then suddenly, you know, the first time seeing them and they have hypertension, you know, how do you, how does it like, how, how do you take all that information together and then have to apply it as like, you know, basically like using the data for a personalized medicine kind of approach? Great question. So what there's a, at the very simplest level, uh, one of the guidelines or recommendations that is very standard in the hypertension field is don't decide that somebody has high blood pressure based on a single value. Um, you know, anybody might have high blood pressure circumstantially every time a person runs or something like that, their blood pressure is going to go up. Uh, if it doesn't, that can be, be uh, quite abnormal. And if people are in pain, if they're in the emergency room, that kind of thing, there could be circumstances where the blood pressure is high that do not reflect a persistent increase and for which we really don't have any evidence uh, of harm or, or benefit in treatment. The issue that comes up clinically and uh, is that on the other hand, if you have a sustained increase in blood pressure, we know that uh, that is the leading risk factor for people becoming disabled or uh, dying early around the planet, uh, according to the Global Burden of Disease Study. And so, you know, there's certainly over a billion people in the world who have sustained elevated blood pressure. So to some extent, one might use a variety of, of tools to help you uh, intuit whether or not it's likely a person has a sustained elevation of blood pressure. But in the end, and that might help you uh, decide how aggressively to pursue figuring out next steps. Uh, if they're uh, 25 and there's one blood pressure that's high in the setting of some very compelling explanation for why, uh, you may or may not pursue that very aggressively. Uh, but as people get older, as the likelihood of they're having a sustained elevated blood pressure uh, is more uh, overwhelming, you're going to want to supplement what you know with additional measurements. And one of the nice things is blood pressure measurements are pretty easy to take. Uh, and they can be made with a device that you can buy in a store for a lot of money. Now, some of the devices may not be as valid or as good as some of the other ones. They don't all have really good clinical validation data. So some of the ones that do have good clinical validation data can be found on the American Medical Association's website uh, called Validate bp.org. And that's quite a nice uh, resource. There's other cuffs that are probably quite good that didn't make the list. Yeah. But if you look at cuffs on that list, those are well-validated cuffs. And so one of the simplest answers to your question is get some prospective data for that individual. Figure out whether their blood pressure is usually high or low. I also uh, at one point wrote a patient page in JAMA about a method called ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And I also wrote a, a review a article in that same episode or issue of JAMA yeah. and thinking about podcasts. So uh, <laughs> in that, um, it, it, what, I, what I was explaining in those uh, patient, uh, in, in that patient page is the use of a device that you wear on your arm, under your clothes. Uh, it's, a, it's a cuff. It has a long pneumatic tube 
that goes to something that you either wear in a sling around your body or suspend on a belt. And this device can inflate the cuff. And it can do this uh, every, let's say, 15 minutes while you're uh, out and about doing your daily activities. And typically, it's set to do it maybe every 30 minutes after a pre-designated sleep period, like 10 p.m. And that gives you a lot of information because then you can learn what is the average daytime blood pressure, what's the average nighttime blood pressure, which is actually, it turns out, is more predictive of cardiovascular outcomes than even the daytime. The 24-hour average is very predictive of outcomes as well. So outcomes like stroke and and heart attack. So that's quite a useful method. It's not used much in the United States for a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe there will be um, some new methods. People have been working really hard for, I think, decades to try to understand, is there some way that you can have average information about blood pressure that doesn't involve cuff inflating? This is pretty unwieldy. You have to have somebody prescribe that device to you, basically, unless you go buy a very expensive device. Uh. And then you know you usually use it once for 24 hours, you give it back. Well, that really mitigates against understanding the circumstances over a period of time. Whereas the home blood pressure uh, is is very, very useful. And I learned recently that uh, where I practice at the University of Michigan, we had one of the earliest hypertension centers or clinics in the United States. Uh, Ours was either the first or the second. And I read a book by the person who founded it, and he wrote it in the 60s. And he talked about what he called the autosfig which was something that he has a photo of in this book. It's quite interesting. It was something that you could use to manually measure your blood pressure by blowing up a cuff with a bulb, and you could check your own blood pressure. He was using uh, out-of-office or home blood pressure measurements in the 60s. And I, when I came to Michigan 11 or 12 years ago, I was uh, you know, shown that that was a very useful adjunct to what I was doing. I didn't know it dated back to the 60s. and. Yeah. Uh, since then, you know, there's been a bit of a renaissance where people are saying, wow, this out-of-office blood pressure measurement is probably quite useful. Um, whereas I think prior to that, there had been a lot of skepticism about whether the devices were good, you yeah. know, the ones you could buy at the, at the pharmacy. But uh, anyway, you can buy good ones. And and so I, I think you can triangulate this by trying to put together information from different uh, sources, 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring potentially. Uh, home blood pressure monitoring, in my opinion, definitely useful yeah. in, this, in this context. And, and, and ideal if you could have a, like an arterial catheter in 24-7, you know, for a perfect yeah. pressure measurement. But <laughs> That's right. And there are these amazing studies that you read about and physiology studies in a way that have done things like have an arterial catheter in while, peop- while people are weightlifting and you know, <laughs> things like that. And you know, it turns out that the blood pressure, you do a really heavy can go like power lifting can go systolic blood pressure can go 400 oh yeah i know so, when i <laughs> when i was competing in power lifting sometimes when i was maxing out for the lifts or something oh. with the really heavy deadlifts i've noticed i got petechiae all around my eyes <laughs> just from the ruptured you know from the, the, the capillaries bursting and stuff like that but yeah wow yeah, those are the, the extremes of the the blood pressure but with, Those are with, issues with blood pressure. I can't necessarily <laughs> recommend that. You know, but but with the big swings, you know, I mean, blood pressure yeah. is very dynamic and it's very responsive yeah. to emotional, hormonal, physiological, like everything that we do changes our blood pressure to some extent, you know, based okay. on demand. 
in an unpathological situation, I guess. Um, how, you know, is, I, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm thinking about the parallels to, let's say there was sort of that movement for a while with heart rate variability, where the idea of you needed a certain amount of dynamicity within the system, uh, mm-hmm. in order to stay healthy per se. Otherwise, if there was a rigidity within the measurements or there was no swings up and down whatsoever, then that was somewhat of a pathological instance. Is there, yeah. you know, with blood pressure, is there a similar thing to be able to, like when you look at the data, is just the the pure value itself one measurement? Yep. And then do you have another one to say like how responsive it is to certain things? And is there a way to normalize that? Well, that's a great question. There's a few different things that um, I could say about that. The first thing that's been known since the 1890s is that if you check a blood pressure a single time, you will typically find that it is a higher measurement that you will make than if you check it a second time a minute later. And that will typically be higher than if you check it a third time a minute later. And so if people have done things like measure blood pressure in about 100 people, six times a minute apart. And we use this method in my clinic too, actually. And and we've reported the average um, blood pressures on those six measurements. And it just comes down quite nicely and <laughs> reaches an asymptote. And there's some reason to believe that the reason that that happens is that the cuff inflating has perturbed the blood pressure upward. And at first, I thought it might also be, you know, largely the so-called white coat effect when people are, you know, have their blood pressure perturbed by having maybe an authority figure or somebody. There's some uh, some evidence of that, but it turns out this happens at home too. Uh, it doesn't happen as much if the blood pressure is close to say 130 or below the oh, systolic weird. blood pressure. But if the systolic blood pressure starts to go up, and let's say it's 150, 160 on first measurement. It's very likely that I'll repeat measurement a minute later lower than that, and it'll be lower if you do it again, and often by a fair amount. So one of the things that clinical trials did was they tended to average two measurements or, or uh, three measurements, and uh, we tend to think that the, a single measurement that is high is potentially misleading in the direction of thinking that it's higher than it really is. One of the studies that uh, Giuseppe Mancia did in the 1980s, uh, he's a, a hypertension researcher in Italy. And what he did was he had people come who were in the hospital with an arterial line in one arm. And then he had a nurse or a physician unacquainted with that patient uh. walk in and measure the blood pressure in the other arm. And the systolic blood pressure went up as much as 50 millimeters of mercury in people compared to the three minutes prior to walking in, these things all being adjudicated by the heart line. And, oh, wow. and so there, people have a big response. What is less studied, as best I can tell, is when people have this big increase in blood pressure uh, at the time that their blood pressure is being measured, does that signify anything about what's going to happen to them over time? Now, in clinic settings, I think it it might be hard to tell because uh, some of the other factors that might uh, might confound that are having just walked back, you know, from the or walked from the parking lot to get your uh, do it. If, if they happen to rush you back quite quite quickly and don't let you rest, your blood yeah. pressure may be turned upward by that, and then it may come down more when they check it a few times. Is so, there a, is there a uh, 
like when you when you take the blood pressure, you know, you inflate the cuff to the point where you you cut off the blood flow. Is there yep. a um, auto response from the blood vessels so that you get a dilatory after? So that way, the the diameter of the blood vessel when you take it a second time, or wouldn't that matter? That is what I that's what I originally <laughs> intuited the ration of the explanation to be. I thought it had to do with hemodynamic effects that were local to the vessel. Yeah, it, it turns out that that's not the consensus explanation. I haven't uh, made studies of this, you know, it, it, physiology myself, but the consensus explanation is not that it's the behavior of the local vessel, but that it's something sympathetically mediated. That mm. has to do with the uh, cuff inflation and some accommodation that can occur to cuff inflation. That uh, even if it is only you know just a minute afterward, there's something that that's the explanations that I've heard. Now I've also tweeted asking people, can anybody establish that really firmly that that's what's going on? Because I've always been bothered by the possibility that there's other explanation, and I'm not absolutely certain, but. I, it appears to be something that happens quickly. The Mancia study, by the way, I didn't mention this, but that I gave you the fact that blood pressure can increase, systolic blood pressure can increase 50 milliliters of mercury in people who had somebody come in and measure the blood pressure in the other arm. Yeah. Now that was done manually, and it was that's the result if a doctor came and did it. If uh, a nurse came and did it, the response was the excursion upward was actually lower than that. And oh. it was, was not as big. Huh. And the other thing that was interesting was that that extinguished when the nurses came in and did that again several times, but it did not extinguish when the doctors did. So some of this stuff truly is exactly what you think it is. It's like a white coat type of phenomenon. And some of it has been attributed to something related to cuff inflation. And I think that may be right, but I do wonder if there could be more to it than is generally understood. <laughs> We're going to um, take some vessels and... Uh artificially perfuse them and then we'll just we'll squeeze them you know and then do it yeah, well, acetyl acetylcholine challenge before and after exactly <laughs> I guess maybe this maybe that kind of uh, explains why we talk about it maybe a little bit in loose terms but but it's it's a pretty important thing because most of the errors that can be made in the measurement of blood pressure in yeah. clinical settings will tend to overestimate the blood pressure so in and probably the number one thing is to see a high pressure and not repeat it uh, that's a that's a setup for the problem that it sets up. Basically, the thing it invites is a treatment accident, which could yeah. lead to adverse effects, et cetera. And there are other. Getting back to your original question about variability, that's one known source of variability. And I would say it's clear that the degree to which it falls is related to the initial value, and that kind of um, is is a, kind of a universally true thing in a way. It's a it, as things progress toward the mean, there's a relationship that like, if you have a value that's a departure from the mean population, there's some, uh, as a regression toward the mean occurs, I think it has some relationship with how far you've departed from the mean and other things. So this is probably partly phys physiology and partly statistics, but, uh, that explains that, I guess. Um, but there's another, another thing that is relevant to what you asked, which is blood pressure variability per se. So let's say visit to visit blood pressure variability. Yeah. If you look at somebody's, um, ten, you know, 10 years of blood pressure data, what is it, what is it uh, portent? And there's a few issues there. One thing, if you look it up, you'll see that people report that blood pressure, increased blood pressure variability is associated with poor outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a little different from the heart rate variability literature, which 
as far as I, you know, my take on it, not working on that exactly, has been that it looked pretty robust that people who have sort of nil heart rate variability, <laughs> that doesn't bode too well. And that people who have quite a bit of respiratory variability in their heart rate, that that tends to be, we call that sinus arrhythmia clinically, that yeah. that tends to be, um, by and large, uh, a better prognostic sign than having less uh, variability. Uh, when it comes to blood pressure, it didn't seem to work that way. I've always been a little concerned, though, about this relationship between variability and just how high the measurement is to begin with. Um, I just explained to you that you know that it tends to come down in you know even a minute later in proportion yeah. to how high it was initially. There's this very tight relationship between how high the blood pressure is and how much it's bouncing around between visits. And so what you, I guess, ideally would like is something that's kind of like the coefficient of variability in the lab or something where you yeah. could sort of try to separate out the variability from the mean value. And I'm not sure how easy that is to do in the end, really. Uh, I know people have different approaches and they may swear by those, yeah. but- Sure. <laughs> well, it's, I imagine it's hard to separate sometimes the variability of the measurement itself versus the variability of the actual blood pressure, and you, you might run it. You, I mean, Very the amount well of data said. you would need. <laughs> Very well said. So then you only want to do it in this in a giant population, and you know if you if you right exactly, and then you know as you grow the number of people in whom you're looking at this, yeah, you could grow it by looking at more years worth of records. And then, you know, technologies for measuring blood pressure are coming and going and changing, or you could grow it by having different centers involved at different universities and they're doing different things at different places and different, have different populations. So there's when, you know, um, I guess as Calvin Trilling said, every good idea eventually degenerates into hard work. And <laughs> if you really wanted to sort all that out, it would be yeah. hard. Yeah. Well, I imagine too, like, you know, if you have blood pressure measurements and you're getting the variation across time and you, you know, you have some people that have spikes in blood pressure because they're exercising versus you have other ones that have spikes in blood pressure because they're stressed in traffic, the health outcome might be completely different, even though yeah. the value is the same. So uh, I had the same thought and, you know, if, um, I've had patients ask me, well, if I'm, uh, wearing this 24 hour blood pressure monitor, should I lay off of exercise? That's oh, a pretty yeah. good question, you know, and I, I think I actually wrote a paper um, a number of years back pointing out that even the arm position, when you have this cuff on for 24 hours, even the arm position is not standardized between different studies. Uh -huh. Nonetheless, it turns out that it's a better prognostic indicator of how people will do over time than a typical clinic blood pressure. But it's, it's interesting that, you know, do you, I've had colleagues who tell people to put their arm you know, up or, or put their arm back or do different things with their arm. And I don't think anybody really knows, you know, what it, it turns out if you try to look at what all the studies did that generated the evidence base that this is a good valid way to do things, they did it different ways. And so we yeah. made our best guess at what might be a reasonable uh, approach that we tried to codify in that paper. But we know that, of course, even things like um, you know, the, the position of the arm is incredibly important to what the blood pressure is uh, in, in terms of the measurement because there's the hydrostatic uh, effect of, of gravity. So, oh, sure. you know, and, and that's calculable and you can figure it out. But if you don't know what the arm position was, it's a problem. Is, is that similar to 
just for the listeners, is that like, you know, when you're standing for a long time and your legs sort of get a little bloated because you have excess pressure that then forces some fluid out? Yeah, it's the same concept. And so if you if you were to hold your arm up and have your arm at an elevated position, your uh, blood pressure that you measure in your arm will be lower than if you have your arm below the level of the heart. And the, uh, cons- the uh, properly considered blood pressure is the one where the middle of the cuff, as you go from in this dimension, the, mid- yeah. the middle of the cuff is at the level of the right atrium. Uh, which you know is sort of i don't know upper chest that was uh, it was always funny when we were doing the goat studies because uh, we were doing with fentanyl for a while and yeah. when you when you gave them the fentanyl sometimes they would oftentimes lay down and so we had the arterial catheter in the carotid that we were measuring blood pressure just with a pressure transducer but then when right. the goat would go down and go up you always had to like get in with the goat and then like reduce the the yeah you have to normalize it right or yeah calibrate we, it. No. well we actually had to like just move the the pressure gauge exactly. you know, down so it was like matching with the goat and so someone was sitting there the whole time just like false right the goat. <laughs> i mean where this becomes like pretty interesting physiology is in is in the giraffe you know i mean yeah if you look at the giraffe, you have. I mean, one one thing that people have pointed out over the years is that everything kind of small and fuzzy tends to have a blood pressure that's remarkably like, uh, you know, yours and mine probably is around one one twenty over eighty. Mice and and rats and a lot of animals like that have uh, blood pressures in that range. Now, whether that now whether or not that's truly a healthy human blood pressure is probably something we should should talk about, but. That's it's a common blood pressure among humans, and uh, but but the giraffe does not have a blood pressure that's like that. And yeah, the giraffe's blood pressure, you know, the systolic blood pressure is you know, over three hundred millimeters of mercury. It's very high. And one of the things that's really interesting is um, this: there was a person named Getz uh, who published a paper in Circulation in the nineteen sixties. Who showed that if you anesthetize a giraffe in the field and then use a, essentially a crane to passively lift its head, you're changing its blood pressure dramatically. So it has some sort of a sensor in its nervous system that permits a major decrease in blood pressure as the head heads toward the ground uh. and a big increase in blood pressure as the head is elevated. It, how all this works, I, I think, is really not that well understood. You know, how it could there, be, that, you know, our blood pressure should be one twenty over eighty, and as the same as same as a mouse, and then the giraffe yeah. needs three hundred. It's like you know, weird. Our, our head configurations are very different, but I'm not sure we need one twenty over eighty if you really look critically at the issue. Yeah, um, there was a there was a talk uh, at APS Summit this year um, by Tobias Wang in okay. the Netherlands, and they studied giraffes. And uh, they were looking at giraffes as a model for non-pathologic um, left ventricular hypertrophy. So they were looking at ventricular yeah. hypertrophy as a non-pathologic, you know, so how can we look at the mechanisms of the heart and ways that you can generate some non-pathologic ventricular hypertrophy? And they're looking at the giraffe yeah. because when you take a cross-section of the giraffe heart, like it's gigantic. I mean, it's, it's, it's like wild. the size of our thigh. <laughs> it looks absolutely wild. And, um, and just because have, of the pressure, like just because yeah. of the pressure and they have some, my understanding is they have some anatomic baffles and things that are protecting their, uh, s- some aspects of their, uh, circulatory system. 
uh, or organs from the highest pressures. It's really remarkable. I, I can't hold myself out as a giraffe expert, but <laughs> it's certainly if you, if you study blood pressure, you find out at some point in your career that the giraffe has a pretty interesting one and it's not that well understood. There's all these other animals that are also interesting, but they're not, I mean, I don't think anybody's ever been able to measure the blood pressure in a blue whale. I'd love to know what that is. But oh, wow. Yeah. I don't think anyone <laughs> could tell you. The so, cardiac output from the aorta would be, break any sensor that you try to <laughs> yeah, put in there. I think it would be a pretty tough ask to get that kind of measured, but uh, people have guesses as to what it is. I don't think anybody really knows. But, yeah. But, yeah. So, so that that's the extreme of the extreme. You know, the, these pressure. You know, these animals that are walking around with pressures that if you stuck a catheter in would you know go to the moon. But, but right. with with uh, you know, you said the human with one twenty over eighty may not be an ideal pressure measurement, or may, may not be the ideal. I wonder uh, level. What I do you wonder. what do you think about that? Well, the the reason uh, I, I you know I certainly believed that that was probably true for quite a few years, but the the reasons that I've wondered if that's actually true have to do with um, studying populations outside the United States. Not that I've done that, but other people have studied populations outside the United States, outside other industrialized nations. And uh, I'm thinking of different hunter-gatherer groups. And it turns out that you know the Yanomami population that lives in uh, Venezuela and Brazil their blood pressure is at age one, it's 95 systolic. And at age 60, it's 95 systolic. And uh-huh. very tight grouping of blood pressures around that number in that population. And hypertension is absent in the surveys that have been done. Um, there just isn't anything like that that happens. And it's, I mean, I don't think anybody develops cardiovascular disease. Now, these, these, uh, people do uh, die and they die young, but it's maybe of axe combat and other things. And you oh, might ask, you know, different things happen. They have to get infections for sure, yeah. but they don't, as far as I can tell, die of cardiovascular disease within the boundary, the limited insight we have into how the, the average person there dies. Now, if you look at a population, and what I haven't mentioned is, of course, they live radically differently from us. Some of the differences are that they eat a lot of uh, plants. Uh, they eat um, a very they eat a lot of tubers and other kinds of plants. They may occasionally eat birds. They eat um, uh, actually the biggest source of sodium in the Yanomami diet is ashes of wood that they use to cook on the ground. Oh, okay. uh, that's onto food that they're cooking. And so their total sodium consumption in a day is less than 100 milligrams, as inferred by looking at a 23 milligram uh, excretion of urinary sodium in 24 hours, and then adjusting for the fact that they must lose some sodium in sweat and stool. And um, yeah, and they have this very low blood pressure. They, they eat a lot of potassium, so they're they're eating more potassium than they are sodium, which is exactly the opposite of what happens typically. In nations like the United States and most countries in the world. Yeah. And they're very active and they there's really no obesity. Um, and they're not exposed to, you know, chemicals. There's, there's many different um, features that could be contributing to this. But it looks like that might be sort of the primordial number uh, that you have to have in order to be alive as a human is 95 on the top number. And um, 
when you then look at a group of uh, hunter-gatherers in Papua New Guinea, there's, again, not much evidence in surveys where people have tried to find evidence of cardiovascular disease. There's really not much evidence of hypertension or cardiovascular disease. Mean blood pressures, systolic blood pressures tend to be around 105 millimeters of mercury on a diet that seems to have less than 200 milligrams of sodium per day. And again, higher in potassium uh, than what we eat here, uh, more active uh, population. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, attribute this to any one factor. We don't know what all the factors are that, that differentiate our population from theirs with respect to uh, blood pressure. But there's also a group called uh, the Chimani in Bolivia who have quite a bit of inflammation. They have helminthic infections, so they have infection with a certain type of parasite. Um, but their coronary artery calcium, which is a, at least in our society, helps to judge how much coronary atherosclerosis people like they have. It's sort of left shifted radically compared to the distribution of coronary calciums that we see here. Huh. So even you know, that, I think it, one of the implications is inflammation is probably not the whole story on atherosclerosis, despite the fact that you know some people are are quite interested in the hypothesis that it contributes. Uh, it seems like you can have quite a bit of inflammation without developing any atherosclerosis to speak of. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, I think these civilizations that are not our own teach us a lot, actually. Uh, I first began to understand that, I think, when I read um, a, uh, a piece of epidemiology called, it's called something like Sick Individuals and Sick Populations. And it was by Jeffrey Rose, who was a great epidemiologist who worked on blood pressure. And what he, some of the points he raised were, in the 1970s, if you looked at the distribution of cholesterol in Japan or in parts of Finland, it was a bell-shaped curve, just like the distribution of cholesterol or blood pressure is here. But in the 70s, it was right-shifted so that the mean was higher in Japan. It was higher in Finland than here. And it held true in each of those bell-shaped distributions that the relative risk of people who were in the tail of the distribution to the right of the mean were those people were at higher risk compared to the people who had an average um, cholesterol. But there was some factor you could never discern by looking within one of those populations that was differentiating the entire sure. uh, population's risk and what that mean value was. And I, I sometimes think we don't think enough about that and how yeah. you know somehow we might be opting accidentally into... Um, higher than necessary blood pressures as a, as an entire uh, society. So um, then is there you know, with the, with the, you know, perhaps suggesting a genetic component, regionally specific genetic component, let's say, you know, with um, like with the animal models for hypertension, there's the salt sensitive hypertension and, you know, and then within the populations, there's an X percentage of people with essential hypertension versus salt sensitive hypertension versus those that are somewhat salt resistant hypertension. Um, 
or salt independent hypertension, whatever. Uh, but the the idea being that you know if we try to isolate a, a tribe in a certain remote village that has a lower amount of hypertension, and we also see that their uh, their consumption of sodium is much less and the potassium is higher, or whatever. Um, you know, is there? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm trying to feed, and- feed it back to understand, like when you're when you're trying to take the insights from that group, and we can certainly say that there might be a certain health outcome that might be predicted based on the blood pressure. But is there a way to normalize across genetic individuals or genetic variations across regions to say that the changes in sodium or the the lower amount of sodium that they're consuming is uh, the main cause for the lower blood pressure versus that of, let's say we have Americans that have a higher blood pressure but they don't necessarily have salt sensitive hypertension. If that makes sense, I don't know if that makes sense. At all. Well, I don't. I, I, I'm not sure either. You know, and I, I think it's. <laughs> I mean, I think you're asking the right kind of question. It's the kind yeah. of question that I think about, and I don't know how best to answer that. The um, there's been a longstanding hunch, and I would sort of describe it as a hunch that um, sodium causes a very sustained long-term elevation, sodium in the diet, elevation in the blood pressure of a substantial fraction of the population. But as you have just uh, pointed out, uh, you can see from work by Derek Denton that was published in Nature Medicine that even among non-human primates, if you ramp up the amount of sodium in their diet over months, Although the average blood pressure does increase, uh, and it increases in proportion to how much you continue to ramp up the the sodium and it comes down when you take the sodium out of the diet, there is substantial inter-individual variability in the response. So there's something, Mm. even in animals that are, I guess, quite closely related to each other in the same tribe, in the same group of uh, non-human primates living in the same enclosure or same area. It seems like there's this, un, I would say, largely unknown variable uh, that looks like a salt sensitivity issue. Yeah. But one issue that I would pose is that I wonder whether if everyone were consuming truly low-sodium diets uh, and high-potassium diets and were getting enough sleep and were being active and maintained a healthy body weight, whether we might find that things look much, much different in terms of the average blood pressure in the United States. Mm. One of the things I'm wondering, for example, is, is uh, the dietary issue of minerals, is it a permissive factor that allows other factors to have a bigger impact on blood pressure? That's one of the hypotheses that's been out there for uh, quite a while. And I mean, Derek, is there is is there any other mammal besides human that add like supplemental sodium? I don't think so. Is there? I mean, as yes. far as like, well, yeah. It turns out that oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of animals that add salt. Yeah. Uh, so the classic example is um, a picture of uh, usually it's a moose or something like that licking the windshields of cars in in you know uh, yeah. <laughs> Yellowstone or something, or deer do, uh, also will lick. Uh, salt. Uh, and there, I mean, this is actually quite interesting. There, 
it turns out that uh, Derek Denton, among other things that he's um, established, he wrote a wonderful book called The Hunger for Salt. Very long book. It's really interesting. And one of the points he raises is that um, in the setting of mineral deficiency, if somebody has a true mineral, mineral deficiency, then this may actually contribute to uh, behaviors like cannibalism. And that's been, cannibalism has been observed in rodents that are put on extreme mineral deprivation. So there is, and, and there's a certain overlap between the populations in the world that eat the lowest amount of sodium and that practice cannibalism. So there may be some environmental recycling of minerals that happens in that way. But as far as I can tell, actually quite a few different animals um, and, and this is brought out very beautifully in that book, the, Hung- the Hunger for Salt. Quite a few different animals will uh, gravitate toward eating sodium. And there's some nice ecology literature about the things that animals do to try to increase their salt intake. I um, actually saw a nice hypothesis recently uh, that one of the reasons that uh, canines mark their territory may be because at a future time, they may basically, you know, they, they often mark their territory on the same little patch of grass and compete and all that. Yeah. And one hypothesis is that that's setting up basically a future salt. Um, oh, interesting. I, I thought about that actually today. I was that's noticing it. my dog was, you know, and he's, he's peed in the exact same corner of the exact same part of where I take him outside every single day. And I always laugh because I bring him outside and, you know, you get so frustrated. You're like, come on, just pee. Because I know where you're going. Like, you're going to go there every time. But it's we got to be there, there, right? But yeah, but we got to go through this whole dance and then it always ends up there anyways. And so sometimes right. I just hold him there and I'm like, just go. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it interests people, there is an ecology literature about that type of uh, environmental recycling of sodium things. So, you know, some of it's more in the stage of conjecture, but I think some of it's actually quite established that animals will migrate based upon being able to get more sodium and things like that during different times of the year. Oh, that's so, yeah, it looks like, um, I, f- I feel like I'm missing a number of different uh, vivid examples, but uh, quite a f- Oh, I know the other a- answer that comes to mind in terms of animals that had salt is uh, there's at least one population of monkeys that lives in Japan. And my understanding is that they will very often uh, wash their food in salt water and um, that they like to add salt water basically to what they eat. So clearly salt is very appetitive, but I do wonder whether it is permissive of higher blood pressures. Uh, There's this beautiful study that was done with 19,000 plus people published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's called SSASS. And this was a clinical trial. So that's a talk about a big project. Yeah. Yeah. It's a collaboration between the George Institute in Australia and investigators in China. The way that the study was done was that they cluster randomized people who lived in 600 villages. 300 of the villages were given sodium chloride, regular old table salt, to distribute to people for cooking in these rural villages Mm -hmm. if those people elected to participate in the study. And then the other 300 villages were randomized to distribute uh, a potassium-containing salt substitute. So it was a mix of 75% sodium chloride, 25% potassium chloride for cooking. And these rural villages were places where people really 
don't go to restaurants as much as cook at home. And one of the things that they found was absolutely remarkable, in my opinion, was they, they expected there would be a reduction in stroke in these older patients who had uh, hypertension or had previously had a stroke. And they did find that there was a reduction in stroke. But they also found there was a reduction in other cardiovascular events, as well as a reduction in total mortality. So I, I found that pretty fascinating. I, yeah. I do wonder, and certainly my lab is interested in the question of whether or not there are effects of the minerals in the diet that go well beyond just modifying the blood pressure. Yeah. I think there's reason to believe that that should be the case. For example, 80% of the oxygen consumption of the kidney has been estimated to be related to transepithelial ion transport. Well, that's a huge workload. Uh, and I have been trying to work out recently, you know, what should we expect that that looks like under the circumstance of somebody eating, you know, 4,000 milligrams of sodium a day is, is common in the United States versus say a hundred milligrams. I mean, I suspect that that's not completely, um, Com- not completely neutral in terms of energy expenditure and ATP usage. And so anyway, things that we're sort of just whiteboarding and just trying to figure out now. Yeah. Uh, so I know with the, with the mineral corticoid, uh, receptor activation or not receptor, yeah, mineral corticoid receptor activation. And then the, uh, translocation of sodium and potassium through aldosterone and, or sorry, I should say I, I uh, learned physiology or endocrine physiology from Herschel Raff. And so if I don't say aldosterone, then instead of aldosterone, I will be murdered. You know, he's, he's, he's well known around the field. <laughs> but but um, with the advent of, I know you're looking at some biomarkers, uh, you know, trying to yep. get different measurements of being able to look not only at the blood pressure itself, but rather like biomarkers of treatment efficacy as well. Could yeah. you talk about, you know, so the importance of some of that? And I, I think that that's oftentimes completely just disregarded in, but it's a super important point of like, I was trying to bring up with the variability. Not only do you have variability of how the blood pressure is in itself and how reactive it is, but how people actually respond to different treatments is not a walk in the park, I assume. No, people definitely respond quite differently. Uh, for example, it uh, appears that there are patients who really respond beautifully to mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, but not as well to the addition of other blood pressure medications in the circumstance of what we call treatment-resistant hypertension. In fact, a lot of people who have blood pressure that's hard to control with three medications, which is really an approximate definition of treatment-resistant hypertension, a lot of those patients can get their blood pressure controlled with drugs that block the mineralocorticoid receptor much more easily than they can get it controlled by adding a different class of blood pressure drug. And this appears to be true across a wide spectrum of values of serum aldosterone concentration. So the canonical ligand for activating that receptor, it, it just measuring it in many instances, doesn't seem to provide the value, the level of insight into the responsiveness to mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists as you might expect. Now, that might be because you know there's a reason it's not called the aldosterone receptor, and uh, it's it's called the mineralocorticoid receptor because there are other endogenous mineralocorticoids as well: cortisol, deoxycorticosterone, 
uh, to some extent, there's some evidence in animal models that RAC1, which is a small GTPase, can activate pyrrolocorticoid uh, receptors, and there may be other things as well. So, uh, you know, the uh, exact nature of the mineralocorticoid receptor activation is usually not knowable clinically yeah. in people who have um, treatment-resistant hypertension or high blood pressure. But we often can find people who have truly odd amounts of aldosterone production. About 20 to 22% of the people whose blood pressure is hard to control with three well-chosen drugs will have what we call primary aldosteronism or excess production of aldosterone by the adrenal glands. And how do we define excess? Well, essentially the concept is that it begins to be renin-independent production of aldosterone. Mm -hmm. Ordinarily, renin is a major upstream driver through several additional steps of the production of angiotensin II and then aldosterone. But in the setting of primary aldosteronism, people may have essentially undetectable or very low levels of circulating renin, and they may still produce very high amounts of aldosterone, typically not as high as the aldosterone of people who consume 100 milligrams of sodium a day, because that <laughs> has been studied in the 1970s by uh, colleagues of mine at the University of Michigan. <clears throat> but it's still quite high uh, in people with primary aldosteronism. It's one of the things that's been discovered in the last few years is that if you take people uh, who appear who are ostensibly healthy and you salt load them, you give them a bunch of sodium to eat, the 24 hour production of aldosterone thereafter varies in a completely continuous manner from person to person. Uh, so there really isn't sort of a binary disease state where you either produce aldosterone, a salt-retaining hormone, although you eat a lot of salt, which is paradoxical or inappropriate, or you don't. It's not like that. It's much more of a spectrum. And so I think part of the answer to this salt sensitivity issue is going to turn out to be that people have varying degrees of uh, ability to suppress the production of aldosterone. This makes a certain amount of sense if you consider that in evolutionary terms, our circumstances probably were much more like what the Yanomami are faced with on a daily basis than what we're faced with on a daily basis. And the ability to produce large amounts of aldosterone under control of renin would have been life-saving in the setting of having very infrequent exposure to sodium. Because you absolutely had to retain as much of it as possible. Because one of the issues there is, you know, sodium is minuscule. It goes right from the blood into the urine and it would leave the body if you didn't have a way to reabsorb it. But you do need some sort of fine tuning for the issue of how much of it to re reabsorb. And so in the Enamami, the renin levels are very high, the aldosterone levels are very high, the blood pressures are low. They're reabsorbing just as much sodium as they can, essentially. Uh, but then that may be downregulated at other times. It's upregulated during pregnancy, by the way. But it may be downregulated if they have a salty meal or they eat an animal that has you know, salt in the body. 
Um, and, but in people here who are eating, you know, potentially in, in one meal, many times what people eat in a day in a hunter-gatherer context in terms of sodium, the challenge physiologically is to shut off the production of aldosterone. And we didn't evolve under that stress. We really, <laughs> we're not adapted to that. Yeah. Um, and so we weren't, I gather that we weren't really under any selective pressure to, to develop a good capacity to shut off aldosterone production. So I think one of the issues is to the extent that people develop uh, this problem, primary aldosteronism, if they then go about eating sodium, the extent to which they uh, make this salt-retaining hormone despite eating all that salt will probably have a huge influence on what their blood pressure is. It's not as simple as that, clearly, because measuring the levels in the blood doesn't seem to truly predict the response to mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists as, as effectively with, as we would expect. But anyway, that's some of the background as far as why we're working on this. And I think it has uh, some relevance to uh, why there is a right shifted blood pressure distribution in our population compared to the Yanomandi. Uh, one of the things that Jeffrey Rose uh, wrote in that article of uh, sick individuals and sick populations was that if you were to take conscientious researchers and transport them into a society in which everybody smoked 10 cigarettes a day. You, know, you could ask the question, what would they conclude is the cause of lung cancer? Not smoking, right? That would be completely invisible in the analysis. It, it, oh, because, I see. Yeah, yeah. Do you see, the, you see the problem? Because they're looking for relative risks, and they would be able to, what they would presumably conclude through careful investigation is, it, that lung cancer in that study would be a disease of varying genetic susceptibility, completely sure. missing the contribution of the dominant contribution of cigarette smoking. And so I do wonder whether either um, you know eating too little sodium or eating, uh, I'm sorry, eating too much sodium or eating too little potassium or the combination of the two, maybe it's the ratio that matters the most, uh, not getting enough activity, all these things combined. I wonder if that is sort of acting in a sense like that sort of factor that just drives up the average blood pressure in the population, right shifts it, makes it very high in some individuals and okay in a few people. And then in the middle, it's high by standards of hunter-gatherers. Anyway, those are, that's kind of how I've come to look at this. But yeah. but in terms of the clinic, you know, I see a lot of patients with treatment-resistant hypertension who come to see me and I test them for uh, overt evidence of primary hyperaldosteronism, but they can usually be treated effectively whether or not they have high aldosterone level and a low renin level. Usually, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists will work well in people with treatment-resistant hypertension, which was nicely studied in a four-way crossover study called Pathway 2. And so, you know, the reasons that that works that way are not that well understood. We need better tools to be able to do things like measure the activation of this receptor so that yeah. we could say, independent of measuring one ligand or cortisol, another ligand, these different ligands, well, what is the activity state of the receptor itself? So one of the things we've worked on is looking at developing new tools to measure the activity of 
the human mineral alkylcorticoid receptor ex vivo. And so the approach that we've taken is that the mineral alkylcorticoid receptor is a nuclear hormone receptor. And like other nuclear hormone receptors, it's a ligand activated transcription factor. So uh, when aldosterone or cortisol or DOC or whatever uh, ligand binds it, it dimerizes, we think, and then it translocates to the nucleus where it regulates the activity of different, the transcription of different genes. We know some of those genes from uh, animal studies, and they include things like uh, subunits of the uh, amyloride sensitive epithelial sodium channel, or ENAC, through which sodium is reabsorbed into uh, epithelial cells uh, lining the distal nephron. And um, that's under aldosterone regulation, that physiology. And so uh, that's you know what we've been leveraging to try to identify new markers of this in, in humans. So what we're interested in is the fact that uh, we published a few years ago a high correlation between the contents of extracellular vesicles that are secreted into the urine and tubular, uh, I'm sorry, uh, cortical nephron gene expression. Hmm. And what we had also published in that same paper was the finding that as you would expect of a marker of mineralocorticoid receptor activity in uh, prehypertensive volunteers who were uh, who were salt deprived and then salt loaded with IV saline and, and oral sodium, we saw suppression of genes that were regulated by the mineral corticoid receptor in as expressed in these extracellular vesicles and measured by qPCR oh, cool. and this was normalized to essentially time because these were uh, timed urine collections that we had separated the vesicles from so yeah. we're continuing that work and we're trying now to move uh, well one of the things we did was we, su we submitted that to I guess what you would consider the premier medical journal and they sent yeah. it out for review but I think that one of the messages that came back is an error is to pick the genes into qPCR because you really should have looked at all of the genes that you could using uh, RNA sequencing. And I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, I think yeah. there's some advantages to, to leveraging what we know from the basic uh, models, but there is also you know, much to be learned about how it works in humans in specific. And so one yeah. of the things we've been doing as we did this new study with 230 milligrams and 6,900 milligrams is we're trying to collaborate uh, with people who have done some pioneering work uh, doing um, mRNA sequencing of uh, extracellular vesicles in, in the urine to look at, in that case, diabetic kidney disease. Uh, so we're working uh, to see if we can follow in that in those footsteps and see if we can do what I think will be the first physiologic study where we're changing something in a set of people in a crossover study looking at what happens to uh, urinary extracellular vesicles, entire uh, transcriptome. Oh, that's, it's a Herculean effort, but it's, it's, yeah. it's cool. Well, Cause I always, you know, with the, with the mice sometimes, you know, cause I started with, with goats and with goats, yeah. we had a heterogeneous population because we just got whatever came off the farm when they were done milking. And so some right. of them were a Nubian and some of them were an Alpine. They're all different breeds, all different, everything. Okay. And so the odds of finding a big effect were less because it's a genetic just mix. But every anything that we did find was really robust versus right. 
versus with the inbred mice strain, sometimes, you know, we can find something rather easily, but the translation across individual strains and everything is kind of different. You know, like, like I find a lot of variability with the opioids, but then when you do the same thing in the CD1s, maybe it's less, or maybe they're more robust or like we were doing an analysis on size, you know, physiological size and trying to trigger them with astrocytes and stuff. And it worked really good in one rig. And then you put them in a different rig to record and there weren't any size. And it was like, now what do we do with, you know, (laughs) so it becomes kind of confusing at times. And, uh, you know, so the devil can be in the details, but with the translation thing is, which, which I love the translational physiology at a, at a core is sort of where it's really cool because then when someone asks, you know, what do you, what's the purpose of what you're doing? You can say, well, here's what we're trying to treat. And right. uh, Right. That's kind of cool. You know, I had a conversation with a student today in the lab and sort of encouraged her and you know i was reflecting on this conversation because she was working on something where we have another student working on this and i see how it's incredibly important in a particular area and it takes uh it's going to take time though because of how fundamental it is to be able to bring it to even the level where i can explain to others in a sense why it matters it yeah. just it's very fundamental kind of stuff and you know involves IP and trying to understand what proteins are interacting with others. And in the end, I think it's gonna be very important. But I did have trouble advising her to also go down that on that project, go down that road, because it's going to take, you know, time for it to mature to the point where its um potential to help people could be articulated very easily or clearly. And then there are other projects that we have that are a bit more, that are a bit closer to um, to, to publishing. And you know, we have things related to, for example, projects related to left ventricular hypertrophy uh, in pri- patients with um, who may be at risk for primary aldosteronism. What's what's known is that people who have the overproduction of aldosterone or renin-independent aldosterone production by usual criteria, well, they. Uh, have more left ventricular hypertrophy than other people who have high blood pressure. But uh, a very smart uh, University of Pennsylvania trained endocrine fellow came to me at one point and said, well, would it work the other way? If you had uh, people who have left ventricular hypertrophy and you studied their production of aldosterone, would you find that they are actually making aldosterone in a renin independent fashion? And it's a good question. Nobody's ever... <laughs> So we're working on that. Yeah. There's other things. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I sort of encourage the student today, maybe look at some of the things that are going to be a little bit closer to completion. But it is, it's always very um, challenging to figure out, you know, how how applied should the work be and how much should it be um, focused on things that you recognize may not be usable now, but you think have big picture importance. Yeah. That's, it's, yeah, I think you uh, sell it both, but it's it's hard. Yeah, I think my my last grant reviewer uh, summarized it pretty well, especially at least for for our field with opiates. And uh, yeah, he said or they they said in the review that 
the information coming in about how an opiate activates a certain receptor is becoming more saturated than the receptor itself. And it's now time to actually test a treatment. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that could and be, thankfully that I was, bad, thankfully I was testing treatments. So it worked in my favor, but it was a, oh, thank a goodness. A, yeah, it was a, it was a funny comment. You, you met the friendly, uh, you met the friendly grant reviewer. In a yeah. Sense. Yeah. Just cause that you know, being, you see another paper on another different neuron type getting activated and you go, now I got to go back. I got to update all the models, you know, but yeah, that's, that's, yeah. it's a good yeah. problem. I mean, have, but. And the nice thing about having different intellects in the lab or, you know, in, in a group of people is people gravitate toward things that are a little bit different. And yeah. so that's the beauty of, you know, working with a group of people is that you have your ideas about what's going to matter but you also, if you can stay uh, grounded, will remember that it's incredibly difficult, it very possibly impossible to know what's really going to matter in the long yeah. run. As long as you're doing good experiments and you're thinking them through carefully of what they mean and not, uh, you know, and moving on too fast from what you worked on and trying to really consider what it might mean, there's potential for a variety of different um, avenues to yield some really interesting things. Yeah, that's. Well, it's exciting. Well, Brian, I appreciate you taking the time out of your your evening to uh, share the the wealth of knowledge that you have on on hypertension, and it's cool to see uh, the lab. Th- you're putting out publications just left and right, which is kind of cool. So, <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you saying that, and it's been uh, you know great fun uh, talking with you about this tonight. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed that, uh, you know, the grants come through and more exciting work to come. But I'll much appreciate it. Great to talk with you.